Okay, so it's uh, popular to contrast evolutionism and creationism as contradictory ideas. I think that's completely mistaken. I'm not the only one who thinks so. The late uh, Theodosius Dobzhansky, one of the 20th century's leading evolutionary biologists, in a 1973 article that most people like to quote for its title, namely that nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution, said near the end of the article, it's wrong to hold creation and evolution as mutually exclusive alternatives. I'm a creationist and an evolutionist. So that was Dobzhansky. Not only are they not contradictory, there aren't even answers to the same question. That'll be my theme of this evening's uh, talk. The talk will have two parts. In the first part, I'll try to bring some precision to the term evolution. In the process of doing so, I'll also say something about why evolutionary, an evolutionary account of the origin of biological species has earned general acceptance among scientists. In the second part, I'll uh, try to bring some precision to the term creation. This should make clear the truth of my claim that the two theories are complementary and not contradictory. So I want to begin by saying a word about what evolution is not. For too many people, the word calls to mind an idea of a cosmical process, one and continuous from nebula to man, from star to soul, from atom to, to society. There have, to be sure, been thinkers who have advanced such a cosmic vision of the world. This was done in a materialistic way by a German biologist, Ernst Teckel, and my English philosopher, Herbert Spencer, in the 19th century. It was done in a spiritualistic way by French Jesuit paleontologist, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, in the 20th. In developing their worldviews, however, Heckel, Spencer, and Teilhard went far beyond drawing conclusions from scientific evidence to the extent that an evolutionary history of the cosmos can be told as a scientific story, it's not so much the story of one continuous process as it is a composite of distinct but connectable scientific theories. From the Big Bang, through a somewhat Laplacian theory of the origin of the solar system and a somewhat Lyellian geology, to an has yet undeveloped account of the origin of life and a somewhat Darwinian account of the origin of, of species. Whatever the uses to which these theories might have been put by some, but by no means all of their supporters, they were not essentially attacks on Christian doctrine. Indeed, their foundations were laid partly by Catholics, René Descartes, Blessed Neil Stenson, Father George Lemaitre, partly by other Christians like Charles Lyell, and partly by men who had lost their Christian faith for reasons unconnected to evolution, but who did not make any Christian polemics a feature of their work, Charles Darwin, for example. In this lecture, I'll focus on one particular scientific theory, the question of the evolutionary origin of biological species. We need to identify its contents and recognize it as a theory of a particular kind. That'll help us to disentangle it from certain philosophical ideas silently materialism, with which it sometimes unjustifiably claimed to have some kind of logical connection. So first word about kinds of scientific theories. Some scientific theories explain initially puzzling natural phenomena by appeal to, or by the postulation of laws or structures in light of which those phenomena cease to be puzzling. Isaac Newton and James Clerk Maxwell 
posited scientific laws. John Dalton in laying the foundations for chemical atomism, posited underlying structure. Evolutionary theories constitute a kind of explanation very different from those synchronic theories. George Lemaitre, a Belgian priest cosmologist and one of the inventors of the Big Bang Theory, characterized theories of this second type as uh, proposing to seek out initial conditions which are ideally simple from which the present world in all its complexity might have resulted through the natural interplay of known forces. Theories of this kind, this is me again, theories of this kind are found in many sciences ranging from cosmology and historical geology to biology and historical linguistics. They explain not how things work, but where they came from. Let's begin with an example. Why do the languages of uh, Romania and Portugal, of Italy and of France, display such striking similarities and such systematic differences? I can just give one example on the map here. There are lots. The answer is that they're all descended with different modifications on the Danube and on the Tagus, on the Tiber and on the Seine, from a single known language, Latin, that was once spoken in all these, those places and in which we have extensive records. Now, another question. Why do Latin, Greek, Sanskrit, and Gothic display such striking similarities and such systematic differences? At the end of the 18th century, Sir William Jones suggested an answer along the same lines, even though there's no direct evidence of an earlier Proto-Indo-European language from which all those languages have descended. The fact that Old Church Slavonic, modern Lithuanian, and when it was discovered Hittite, could be added to that list only reinforced the plausibility of the hypothesis of descent from a common language. It's a fruitful pattern. Descent with modification is the best explanation of certain kinds of diversity. Darwin proposed a formally similar explanation for the pattern of similarity and difference found in the flora and fauna of the earth. Why does the earth contain a quarter of a million different kinds of beetles? Why is there such a striking resemblance between the wings of bats and the flippers of whales, the limbs of horses and human hands, and only a much looser similarity between uh, bat wings and bird wings? Why is the genetic code the same for everything from fireflies to elephants? We might do best, however, to begin our understanding of Darwin's theory, not with morphology, but with uh, geology. Not with the work of any biologist at all, but rather with the work of the early 19th century surveyor and canal builder, William Smith. Smith noticed, as he dug his canals, that different strata of the earth had distinct fossil content. Those strata had long been recognized as corresponding to succeeding epochs, in the history of the earth, an idea that had been proposed by blessed Neil Stenson in the 17th century. The obvious conclusion from what Smith observed was that at successive periods in the history of the planet, the earth was inhabited by successive species of living things. This idea of faunal succession is not part of, it's not an inference from Darwin's theory of evolution. It's rather a combination of generalized observation and inference from Stenson's principle of superposition, what's quoted here, that at the time when the upper stratum was formed, the lower stratum had already become solid. At the time when the lower stratum was being formed, 
none of the upper strata existed. It's rather something that evolutionary biology was designed to explain, that is, faunal succession. It, it was uh, evolution was designed to explain that uh, faunal uh, succession was accepted in the early 19th century by the leading French geologist, the anti-evolutionist Georges Cuvier, no less than by Smith, who advanced no theory at all about the cause of the succession. It raises, however, in its turn, a further question. What's the origin of the species which occur in higher geological strata but are not found in the lower strata? Species, that is, that to all appearances existed in later periods of the Earth history, but not in the earlier ones. That's the question that, Darwinian, that Darwin set out to answer. It's the geological context that underlies the title of his book. Where did these new species come from? That was the mystery of mysteries. A key clue to its solution came in 1855 when Alfred Russell Wallace, third in the column, published a short article arguing for what's come to be called the Sarawak Law, namely that every species has come into existence coincident both in space and time with a pre-existing closely allied species. That's tough. From mere succession of fauna to succession of similar fauna was also a generalization of observation. The next step, the idea that the successors not only came after the earlier fauna, but came from it, was an inference to the best explanation of those observations. It was one component in the theory of biological evolution published by Wallace and Darwin in 1858. It can be summarized as consisting of two ideas. The first, the common ancestry thesis, was that all living things originated by descent with different, different, with differential modification in different environments from one or a few first kinds of living things. This theory, Darwin argued, in The Origin of Species, explained a wide array of facts in paleontology and biogeography, in morphology and embryology. The explanatory reads of the common ancestry thesis, especially in its less comprehensive versions, won it fairly quick acceptance in the scientific world. It is perhaps worth adding that although Darwin's theory explains a wide array of facts from the diverse areas just mentioned, these are facts that are generally unknown to laymen. Non-biologists simply do not wonder why the structure of bat wings resembles that of mole legs and whale flippers. They do not wonder why the fauna of the Cape Verde and the Galapagos Islands differ from each other despite the similarity of environment and why each resembles a fauna of its nearest mainland. They do wonder how a species that lacks eyes or wings could ever turn into a species that has them. This lack of wonder about the features of the world that Darwin is trying to explain, combined with the somewhat counterintuitive nature of Darwin's solution, which, to highlight the paradox, attributes a common ancestry to beetles and whales, generates much of the skepticism that Darwin's theory continues to face. As Darwin himself wrote, anyone whose disposition leads him to attach more weight to unexplained difficulties than to the explanation of a certain number of facts will certainly reject my theory. What caused the modifications that differentiate species? Darwin's second thesis was that the modifications were caused chiefly by what he called natural selection. Animals in nature 
No less than uh, barnyards and dovecotes of England's breeders vary from one individual to another within a species. Just as pigeon fanciers can produce strikingly varied types of pigeons by artificial selection, selecting for breeding only those with the most pleasing traits, nature can produce striking variations in finches, where there's variation in the, in the beak type that correlates with uh, the kinds of food that's available on a particular island. So uh, with mammals or animals, by confining reproduction to those with traits necessary to survival in the environment in which they lived, and by denying it to those that lack those traits. This, Darwin argued, can produce not only new varieties of pigeons, as I just showed you, but new species of squirrels, new orders of mammals, and new classes of vertebrates. The natural selection thesis is logically independent of common ancestry. Uh, the process and the, the existence of the process of, of natural selection as a modifier of species is a logical consequence of uncontroversial observed facts. Even contemporary anti-evolutionists acknowledge its power to adapt species to their environment, that is to cause the development of drug-resistant strains in bacteria. Darwin made, however, a stronger claim, the claim that natural selection given sufficient time could affect could effect morphological transformation so striking as to constitute the transformation of one species into another. And for that matter, one order into another, that is not just proto-squirrel species into flying squirrels and tree squirrels, but a proto-mammal species into squirrels and whales. That one species was sometimes transformed into another, what's at the heart of the first species? that it was primarily natural selection and not some other mechanism that did so was his The natural selection thesis had a harder fight than did the common ancestry thesis. Held back partly by the mistaken theories of inheritance still prevalent in the late 19th century, and partly by the existence of superficially plausible rival mechanisms of evolutionary change, the natural selection thesis won general acceptance only with its synthesis with Mendelian genetics in the 1930s. We need to look also, however, at a third of Darwin's ideas, that man, no less than other biological species, owes his origin to descent with modification from earlier species. About this idea, we need to note two things. The first is that it's not a component of the evolutionary theory in the strict sense of that term, but an application of it a consequence, though only when that theory is combined with a quite distinct supplementary thesis about human nature. The second thing to note is that it's not so clearly a strictly scientific idea. It, uh, it might better be characterized as a mixed philosophical scientific one. Uh, Darwin's argument for the evolutionary origin of the human race was that man is not different in kind from other animals. In The Descent of Man, published in 1871, Darwin argued that the similarities between man and animal were not merely physiological, but extended to mentality as, uh, uh, as well. The differences in uh, between, say, sea lamprey and chimpanzee are great, differences between a chimpanzee and some kind of 
uh, primitive tribesmen are smaller than that. And they're even smaller, the differences between the primitive, uh, the, the difference between ape, ape and the primitive man are even smaller than the difference between primitive man and some kind of, of genius. That's what Darwin said in, uh, in The Descent of Man, his argument that the, that the whole thing constitutes one long spectrum separations or only differences in the, the differences between human uh, mental powers and, uh, and the animals. These uh, human mental powers, not only perception and emotions, but conceptual thought are best only a better developed version of powers found at least in incipient versions in animals as well. Man not being different in kind from other animals, Darwin thought there was no reason to think that man was different in origin. Like all other animals, his origin was to be found in descent with modification by natural selection from pre-human animals. I'll say more about this later. Without trying to undervalue Darwin's many other scientific ideas from the origin of coral reefs to the African origins of the human race, we can fairly take these three as the central ideas of what's come to be called Darwinism. So two ideas that constitute the part of the theory of evolution, plus one idea about human nature that allows him to, uh, he thinks, to, to, ex, to apply the theory of evolution to the question of human origin. Next uh, question, what is, is creation? Christian anti-evolutionists seem to have three points of concern about Darwin's ideas. One concerns creation itself, a second, the relation, the related doctrine of divine providence, and the third, anthropogenesis, the origin of uh, man. I'll address each in turn. So first, uh, creation, I want to say, is a metaphysical account of the existence of the world. Evolutionary theories, it's important to note, provide only a only approximate account of the origin of their subject not of their ultimate origin. They offer an account of the transformation of the world from a simple or homogeneous state to a complex or heterogeneous one from a world containing only a few biological species to one containing over a quarter of a million species of beetles. They presuppose the existence of the world whose transformation they describe. They leave unanswered the question of where that world itself for the evolutionist, that initial simple state came from. One possible answer to that question is that it was created. Sometimes the term creation is used rather too broadly, at least to my taste, to refer to any account of the origin of things, even to the extent of saying that materialists have their own creation story. This, I, th I think, is not the way we Christians should use the term. We should carefully safeguard the names of our religious ideas, we shouldn't use the term creation so broadly. Catholic theology includes three doctrines of creation, one concerning the origin of the material world, a second concerning the origin of the angels, and a third concerning the origin of man. Let's begin with the first. What is central to the doctrine of creation? Well, what's central is the idea that the material world as a whole depends on God for its very existence. We can try to formulated in a few propositions as follows. Everything that exists outside of God was in its whole substance produced out of nothing. Second, no creature can from its own power produce something out of nothing. 
from those two, we can draw a conclusion that God created the world. Creation, Catholic theology has more to say about creation than that, of course. Here are four more components of the doctrine. The world is the work of divine wisdom. It was created for the glorification of God. The world had a beginning in time. The world is a good world. Connected to the doctrine of creation are other theses concerning God's conservation of the world in existence, God's concurrence with the actions of his creatures, and divine freedom with respect to whether and what God would create. About other questions, however, for example, about how much the world we see around us looks like the world in the first moments after it was created by God, and about how much it has changed over time, Doctrine of creation and theology in general asylum. Scientifically, these are important questions. Theologically, given that they're not separately revealed by God, they're not. The doctrine of creation does real work. It's not inherently anti-evolutionist, but it is an explicit rejection of a variety of other accounts of the origin of the world that have arisen over the course of the intellectual history of mankind. That was the task of the hexameron, the six days of, of Genesis, as American theologian Conrad Hires tells us. For most peoples in the ancient world, the various regions of nature were divine. Sun, moon, the stars were gods. In light of this historical context, it becomes clear what Genesis 1 is undertaking and accomplishing. A radical, sweeping affirmation of monotheism vis-a-vis -vis polytheism, syncretism, and idolatry. Each day, takes on two principal categories of divinity in the pantheons of the day and declares that these are not gods at all, but creatures. Each day dismisses an additional cluster of deities arranged in a cosmological and physical order. Creation is not the only idea on offer in the marketplace of ideas about the origin of the world. Among the non-creationist alternatives are these. The world always existed, or it came into existence by some kind of emanation from God, or the material world was created by an evil spirit, or the world came into being spontaneously out of nothing. Aristotle was an eternalist, Plotinus an emanationist, the ancient Persian religious thinker Mani gave us the creator demon. Some modern atheists, in their desperation, sound a lot like spontaneous exnihilationists. The doctrine of creation in denying all of these alternatives therefore did and does real work, even if it is silent about, say, the exact origin of bacterial flagella or blood clotting cascades or starfish. Some contemporary anti-evolutionists, with the collusion of some of their anti-religious opponents, misappropriate the term creation when they call their anti-evolutionism creationism. In their overemphasis on design, they miss a distinction which they should make. Design does not prove creation. Plato's demiurge designed a world which he did not create. He implemented his design by implanting it in an, in, in an, in an uh, eternally existing matter. Nevertheless, or neither does a creator, as a matter of conceptual necessity, design the world he created. He might, he might not. We can imagine, counterfactually, God telling the angels to bring him some design plans for a material world. Worse, these same anti-evolutionists claim that a contradiction that doesn't exist, one between uh, evolution and creation, 
everyone who accepts the first of these of the theses articulated above, and so all Christians is entitled to the des designation creationist. Evolutionists who accept those ideas are no less creationists than are anti-evolutionists. So what about uh, divine providence? The second allied concern is the idea that the role of chance in evolutionary biology, both in Darwin's version and in, in that of today, is inconsistent with the idea that the world was designed by God, that divine wisdom itself orders all things well. Oh, what is uh, chance? Is the role that evolutionary biology gives to chance inconsistent with the doctrine of divine providence? I think it's not. The role of chance in contemporary evolutionary biology is limited to the generation of that variation within a population which is necessary to the operation of natural selection. In Aristotle's paradigmatic example of chance, a man collecting subscriptions for a feast happens by chance to run into one of the subscribers at the market, to which both the collector and the subscriber had gone for some other reason. If the collector had known that the subscriber would be at the market, he would have gone there to collect the money. So we can say that the collector ran into the subscriber by chance. Why is it said to be by chance? Because he and the subscriber didn't go to the market for this purpose, didn't meet regularly there, etc. But it turned out to serve their purposes, that is, of making a contribution and of collecting one that they met there. The mutations that play a role in evolutionary biology are chance events in just that sense, as an example makes clear. A rabbit, one of whose natural activities is having offspring, is on the way to a cabbage patch to satisfy its hunger, another of its natural activities, when it's struck by an x-ray in a way that causes a genetic mutation in one of its gametes. The result mutation later happens to turn out to be beneficial to one of the rabbit's offspring, though it could as easily have been neutral or even harmful. These mutations, Aristotle would say, occur by chance. If the rabbit had been consciously aware of its natural end of perpetuating its species and had known the x-ray would strike it on the path to the cabbage patch in a way that would benefit its offspring, it would have taken this path for the sake of the offspring. They didn't know. Rabbits never know such things. And neither it nor the X-ray was driven to that fateful encounter by any natural process designed to assure the beneficial mutations on which natural selection can work to adapt the species to its environment. The phrase by chance here means only one thing. Mutations do not arise as a result of some biological process internal to the organism or aimed at a predesignated result in a way in the way in which, say, perspiration does. Darwinism's emphasis on chance was elaborated as a rejection of what was called orthogenesis and similar views alternative to it that were current in the 19th and early 20th centuries. On those views, evolutionary change was a result of some internal progressive principle but proponents of that view were never able to develop the idea in a scientifically plausible way. In asserting that mutations arise by chance, Darwinism does not mean to say that the physical processes that gave rise to the X-rays set its course of propagation or governed its interaction with the DNA molecule, which it eventually hit, were themselves determined by chance. On those points, Darwinism is silent. That's a debate about whether quantum mechanics is deterministic. Darwinians have a no dog in that fight. Events that occur by chance in this sense are not, however, necessarily outside the scope of divine providence. 
on this, not only the Darwinians, but the entire scientific community must remain silent. To be sure, some defenders of, of Darwinism have asserted otherwise, but this only shows that some contemporary evolutionists were as confused on this point as are there any evolutionist opponents. Random processes can be chosen deliberately in order to serve larger ends. An analogy should make this clear. Honest casinos rely on random processes and are designed to do so in order to make a profit for their owners. Perhaps God designed the world in such a way that random processes keep successive generations of living things well adapted to their environment as it changes, as well as giving them the features necessary to live in adjacent environments to which they were at first not well adapted. The very modest role which Darwinism gives to chance is thus entirely compatible with the Christian doctrine of, of providence. Why would God design uh, such, a, such a world? Uh, one can only speculate about why God does things exactly as he does, but here's a guess. Uh, why have a world characterized by final succession at all? Uh, Dominican priest Nicanor Ostriaco in 2016 offered this as a reason. God was in this way able to produce more species to reflect his glory. Four billion species created over three billion year period is far more than the eight million extant species today. In fact, it would have been ecologically impossible for all four billion species to uh, coexist on our planet because there's only a limited number of ecological niches on the planet at any given time. Why not successive fauna directed by God? The French Dominican uh, Domas Verrois wrote in 1887, the genesis of, of the organic world through the intermediation of natural agents requires infinitely more ingenuity than this direct creation. Between a watchmaker who makes a makes a precision watch and an inventor who creates a machine capable of itself producing the same watch, I have no hesitation. The inventor seems to me a hundred yards above the watchmaker. That puts the fittingness of a derivative creation that is a creation using evolutionary processes uh, to, that, are, that is creating a world that evolved clearly enough. The comparative poverty of the special and independent creation or formation of individual species and the manifestation of divine skill uh, present in an, an evolutionary world was also articulated in a passage from German Jesuit Ludwig von Hammerstein wrote in 1903, a billiard player wishes to send a hundred balls in particular directions, which will require greater skill to make a hundred strokes and send each ball separately to its goal or by hitting one ball to send all the 99 others in the directions which he had as in view. Or Jesuit entomologist Eric Vosman, uh, a few years later, wrote, God's power and wisdom are shown forth much more clearly by bringing about these extremely various morphological and biological conditions through the natural causes of a, of a race evolution than they would be by direct creation of the various systematic species. So, did God create the world and horses and some particular horse like Dan Patch? Well, he didn't bring Dan Patch into existence out of nothing, that's for sure. Dan Patch came into existence the same way as did every other uh, harness horse on the racetrack. He was born to natural equine parents. Still, 
He was one of God, God's creature, God's creatures. Similarly, for the horses and species, Christian evolutionists assert were in a natural origin without denying that it was created by God. This distinction between the sense in which the species was created and the sense in which it was not was articulated by St. George Jackson Miller, one of uh, earliest Catholic defenders of biological evolution as follows. So, uh, he said, absolute creation is the absolute origin of anything by God without pre-existing means or material. And he contrasted that with the term derivative creation is the formation of anything by God in such a way that the preceding matter has been created with the potentiality to evolve from it under suitable conditions, all the various forms of it it subsequently assumes. So now let's uh, turn to the origin of the human race. Neither the common ancestry thesis nor the natural selection thesis raise the theological problems for the doctrines of creation and providence that they're sometimes supposed to raise. On the question of the origin of the human race, however, matters are more complicated. Darwin's argument for the evolutionary origin of the human race is based on his idea that the man differs only in degree from other animals, but not in kind. By a difference in degree, he means a difference of more or less of some feature, a difference in kind as one of presence or absence. All of man's mental and moral powers, Darwin said, are the result of gradual evolution of powers found in animals. An evolutionary explanation of man's origin was, he therefore thought, no more problematic than was the explanation of the origin of any other species. Catholic anthropology, by contrast, is exceptionalist, asserting that man is different from animals, not just in degree, but in kind. What is it that man has and animals lack on the basis of which a difference in kind can be asserted? There are two ways of stating the Catholic answer to that question. First is by reference to the powers that can be inferred from an observation of human behavior. Unlike animals, man is capable of conceptual thought and free choice. The second is that man has, but animals lack an immaterial and immortal soul. Catholic doctrine connects these two accounts by asserting that it's the human soul that both makes intellectual thought possible and underlies human immortality. Darwin argued against the qualitative distinctiveness of human powers in the man. His arguments fail to establish the intended conclusion. What about the question of the human soul? Following his usual practice of avoiding theological and metaphysical questions, Darwin seldom used the term soul. In the only passage at all relevant to our topic, he acknowledged that he who believes in the advancement of man from some lower organized form will naturally ask, how does this bear on the belief of the immortality of the soul? But Darwin contented himself in his reply with denying that there's anything in particular irreligious about his theory. He didn't address the question of the existence of human soul. Despite this difference, a partial reconciliation of Catholicism and Darwinism on this point is not difficult. The weakness of Darwin's argument about mental powers does not affect the strength of his argument about the evolutionary origin of the human body. And so we find in, uh, in Mibbert's uh, On the Genesis of Species, published in 1871, the same year as the Descent of Man, we find the first major work of Catholic evolutionism, the idea of the evolution of a suitable body followed by the infusion of a created soul. So 
here's what he wrote. Scripture says God made man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This is a plain and direct statement. The man's body was evolved from pre-existing material, symbolized by the term dust of the earth, and was therefore formed by the operation of secondary laws. The soul of the of every individual man, by contrast, is created that is produced by direct or supernatural act, and of course by such an act. Similarly created. The acceptability of this view was long the subject of intra-Catholic dispute. Its uh, critics argued on scriptural grounds that God must have formed the first human body directly. For some, that meant directly out of non-living matter. Others, for example, uh, Spanish Dominicans, Zephyrino uh, Cardinal Gonzalez and Juan Gonzalez Adentero, uh, thought that direct divine adaptation of an evolved animal body would be sufficient. Cardinal Gonzalez wrote, Mammoth's hypothesis might be juxtaposed with the possibility that causes or agents other than God intervened in the preliminary preparation of Adam's body up to an imperfect stage of development, reserving the final stages in its preparation to receive a rational soul to a divine action. In this way, the essence of Mammoth's hypothesis is preserved with due regard to the direct and immediate action of God in the formation of the body of the first man. The orthodoxy of Mimmer's idea is given provisional formal recognition by Pope Pius XII in the encyclical of 1950. There he wrote, the teaching authority of the church does not forbid that in conformity with the present state of human sciences and sacred theology, research and discussions on the part of men experienced in both fields take part with regard to the doctrine of evolution. And as far as it inquires into the origin of the human body as coming from pre-existent and living matter, where the Catholic faith obliges us to hold that the souls are immediately created by God. Does the question of anthropogenesis pose a limit to my thesis? Could one object that, at least on the question of the origin of the first human beings, evolution and creation are contradictory answers to the same question? Here I acknowledge the matter is a little more delicate, but uh, Mimertist view that has since become fairly standard feature of Catholic thought makes that objection at best misleading. Yeah, evolution meant the emergence of the first complete human person, mind as well as body from human ancestors. And creation meant emergence of the first complete human person by infusion of the created human soul into a body formed from non-living dust by direct divine action, then the two would be answers, uh, different answers to the same question. And both of these meanings uh, do have some difficulty, but I think they're both problematic. Darwin did present such a full evolutionary account of anthropogenesis, and many evolutionists follow him in that. The argument for his view, however, depends on three things. First, a materialist solution to the mind-body problem, which I think is not possible. Second, neglect of the important distinction between the perceptual levels of thought that we share with animals and the conceptual levels of thought that is unique to human beings. And finally, denial of free will as a causal factor in human action. Similarly, the modern anti-evolutionists uh, who have appropriated for themselves alone the term creationists 
seem indefensibly to extend the term creation to include the mere formation of the human body directly from dust. The numerous account of anthropogenesis is a mixed account. Evolution is the answer to the question, what produced the first human body? And creation to the question, what produced the first human soul? Neither alone, but both together, uh, answers the question, what produced the first human being? The situation is precisely analogous with respect to the question of the origin of every human individual whose soul, no less than that of the first human being, was directly created by God. Human reproduction, according to Catholic theology, is not a purely, purely biological process. It requires a combination of a biological process uh, and an act of creation. Biological reproduction and creation of souls are answers to different questions. So, by way of conclusion, the thesis said in the title of this evening's talk is that evolution and creation are not contradictory answers to the same question, but complementary answers to different questions. My conclusion, therefore, should remind you of what those two distinct questions or sets of questions are. So, why are bat wings structurally similar to the legs of horses? Why do new species of fossils suddenly show up halfway up the geological column? Why do birds of the Galapagos Islands look so much like the birds of the Ecuadorian coast and so little like those of the otherwise similar Cape Verde Islands? Why are there a quarter of a million kinds of beetles? To these and similar questions, the evolutionary origin of species is a plausible answer and one that can be further investigated by the methods of, natural, of the natural sciences. Why is there a world at all? What accounts for the very existence of the material world and for the laws that govern its operation? This is beyond the reach of the natural sciences. Those sciences are well suited to sort out competing theories about the nature of heat, substance, or motion, and light, wave, or particle, and even about the history of the world, steady state or big bang, fixity or transformation of species. But questions about whether the world always existed or came into being out of nothing, whether it just came into being uh, out of nothing spontaneously or was brought into uh, into being by a creator, but those are beyond the reach of scientific inquiry. These are, they are the questions to which the theory of evolution has no relevance. Their answer must come from metaphysical inquiry or from revelation. So those are my thoughts, or at least 45 minutes worth of my thoughts on, on this, this 